You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. As we know from past episodes, there were occasions when Rod Serling would try and use the Twilight Zone to slip out a backdoor pilot for a show that he hoped would then go on to become a series on its own. It happened with Mr. Beavis, and then again with Cavender is Coming. I mention this because the title of tonight's episode was later the title, apart from in the spelling, of a popular US sitcom that began a couple of years later in 1965 and also featured a genie. So did Rod Serling's dreams of getting a sitcom off the ground come to fruition? We'll come back to that later on. So tonight's story does feature a genie and of course our protagonist must first find the lamp from which their genie will come. And in this case, we meet George P. Hanley, who enters a store looking for a gift, and bumps into Masters played by James Milholland, who if it weren't for the different name, could be said to be reprising his officious Mr. Armbruster character from the episode The After Hours. Personal gift, sir? Oh, not, not too personal, no. You see, there's this uh, girl at my office, and she's... She's, she's like a goddess, and I, I wouldn't want her to think that I was implying. <laughs> I understand, sir. <clears throat> oh, I have it. It's ideal, it's perfect, it's marvelous. It's romantic, uh, but not forward, and yet uh, on team, in a subtle sort of way, of course. <laughs> Voila. That, that old... This magnificent old antique, a truly distinguished antique, fit for a goddess. A continual reminder of your, your good taste, your individuality, your, your flair for romance. A note the tarnished metal. It testifies to its true authenticity, and only $20. <laughs> Here, put this in a gift box for a most discriminating gentleman. So with lamp in hand, George P. Hanley is headed for a magical journey. And hopefully we're headed for a journey of hilarity in season four's first comedic episode, I Dream of Genie. Meet Mr. George P. Hanley, a man life treats without deference, honor, or success. Waiters serve his soup cold, elevator operators close doors in his face. Mothers never bother to wait up for the daughters he dates. George is a creature of humble habits and tame dreams. He's an ordinary man, Mr. Hanley, but at this moment the accidental possessor of a very special gift. The kind of gift that measures men against their dreams. The kind of gift most of us might ask for first and possibly regret to the last. If we, like Mr. George P. Hanley, were about to plunge headfirst and unaware into our own personal Twilight Zone. First broadcast on March 14, 1963, written by John Furia and directed by Robert Gist. In the promo at the end of the last episode, Rod Sailing welcomed a new writer to the Twilight Zone stable, but he doesn't seem to stay in that stable very long now. His name was John Furia, and in terms of who he was, there's not a great deal of information out there, other than he was born in 1929 in New York, and was heavily involved with the Writers Guild of America. So really speaking, all there is to look at is his resume, which with 28 credits isn't a massive body of work, but he seemed to work steadily from 1960 to the start of the 80s on generally popular shows, like Dr. Kildare, Bonanza and the Waltons. But the biggest project of his career was a show he created himself in 1983 called The Hotel, starring James Brolin, which from what I can gather seemed to be a series of pretty self-contained stories where guest stars would come to a hotel and there would be a romance or a crime or, or intrigue of some kind which would be neatly wrapped up ready 
for a new story the next week, and that ran for five seasons. So while he was welcomed to the Twilight Zone stable by Rod Serling, this was his one and only writing gig for the show, and I do wonder whether how this episode was perceived by the staff of the show had something to do with that, but we'll come back to that later on. Now the director Robert Gist is also a Twilight Zone first-timer, but also only a one-timer, and his backstory gives us a little bit more to chew on. He was born in 1917, and apparently he grew up to be a bit of a tough street kid who was headed for reform school, but he ended up in a settlement house called Hull House in Chicago, which has quite an interesting story to it as well, which is probably a tangent too far for this episode, but it's where he became interested in acting. And his career began on radio and stage in Chicago before his screen career took off. Now his on-screen acting career began in the 1940s in a series of movies, and then onto the small screen in the mid-50s. But then in 1960, he moved behind the camera as well as a director. So in 1961 and 1962 he was working both sides of the camera until he threw his hat mainly into the directing ring from about 62 onwards. So he was a hard working actor and director back in the day. Of note to Twilight Zone fans he had a short marriage to the Invaders star Agnes Moorhead between 1953 and 1954. Now our main character in the episode, George Hanley, Serling describes in his opening narration as the kind of man who goes through his life without being noticed. He never puts his head above the parapet for anything, he never rocks the boat. Even when life is unfair to him and he has every right to complain that he should be treated better, he never will. So there is certainly some scope for some Twilight Zone instigated growth here. And perhaps one of the best illustrations of his character is an early scene of him at work where he is generally walked over by his colleagues and the object of his affections Anne barely notices he is there as the other men in the office all flock around her in a scene that is very much of its time. I, Roger Hackett, do solemnly swear never again to commit gastronomic Harry Carey at Nick's. Beginning with the first day of my promotion to head bookkeeper. But Mr. Watson said that each of us with equal seniority would have an equal chance. That is true, Georgie, old Porgy. We are all equal, but some of us are just a teeny bit more equal than others, especially me. Now, Mr. Watson is fair, Roger. Now, don't, don't, don't be overconfident. I'm sure he will weigh carefully our comparative experience in debit financing and in evaluating liabilities. That old Georgie is one reason I am more equal than you. What, what is? You're always thinking about debits and liabilities when there are assets like her around. Guess who? Roger. Happy birthday to the prettiest oh. girl in this entire office. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Many more. No, but I'm the only girl. <laughs> and, and you would remain the prettiest, even if this office were staffed with the assembled Miss Americas of the past five years. Now stop fishing for compliments and open your present. Well, I wonder what it could be. So as I mentioned in the opening, this episode shares a title with that American sitcom of the same name that would come out a couple of years later, and that was, of course, I Dream of Genie. But while this episode used a spelling that is consistent with the genie as a mystical being, that sitcom uses the spelling of the woman's name Genie as a bit of a play on words. So is this Rod Serling finally getting one of his comedy pilots off the ground? Well, no. Apart from the similarity in the title... I Dream of Genie in the Twilight Zone is completely separate from the show that came out a couple of years later. But what they are both riffing on is an 1854 song by Stephen Foster called Genie with the Light Brown Hair. So note the opening line. 
considering that this episode of The Twilight Zone and the comedy series I Dream of Genie are both comedies, they are riffing on the title of a song that is anything but comedic. Genie with the light brown hair is about a man who is pining for his estranged wife, or rather who his wife used to be when they first fell in love. But by the time the song is over, we learn that he's focusing on a memory because she's drifted away from him now. And apparently this was based upon the writer's real life relationship with his own estranged wife. In the Twilight Zone, however, our genie is neither the genie with the light brown hair of the song or the blonde haired beautiful Barbara Eden from the sitcom. Who? Who are you expecting? Who? I'm the genie of the lamp, that's who. Aladdin, magic, the whole bit. G- genie? G- genie? Yeah. You, you, you don't look like a genie. Well, what difference does the wardrobe make? The routine's the same. You see, a couple thousand years ago, I used to wear those crazy silk balloon long johns with the, with the wild turban. Yeah, but let me tell you something, Jack. George? Uh, Jack, George, as long as you're healthy. Today, we dress like the times, uh, except for these velveteen muckalucks. Muckalucks? Mm. Genie, if, if you are the genie, then I must be the master of the lamp. Big deal. Master of the lamp. All right, you got yourself a free wish. There's supposed to be three wishes. Ah, there's the rub. There used to be three wishes. But let me tell you something, Jack. George? You don't want to change your name, huh? Uh, the scene used to include three wishes, but the recipients were abusing the privilege, so we had to cut down. So, uh, give it a little thought, give me a call, or do me a favor, will you? Sleep on it. So the genie of the lamp is played by Jack Albertson, who we have seen before in the Twilight Zone, in the episode The Shelter, so I won't really go into his bio. But at this point in the episode, about 14 minutes in, I have to say that the comedy isn't quite grabbing me. But then we get to this scene, and I think the interplay between Jack Albertson and Howard Morris is pretty good. You know, I'm not rolling around on the floor laughing, but we have two guys here who obviously know comedy raising up some very questionable material at least a little bit but like i said we're only 14 minutes in and we have 35 minutes left to go so if this episode is made up of these two actors verbally bouncing off each other even if every joke doesn't hit then i'm thinking maybe this could turn out to be okay and there seems to be at least an effort to be unique with the whole genie thing Instead of getting three wishes that don't really turn out like planned, this time George only gets one wish and has to spend some time deciding what that wish is going to be. And the genie even gives him some pointers on what kinds of wishes don't really turn out. So while it's a new kind of take on the whole genie thing, the problem is this now means that the genie isn't going to stick around. Jack Albertson's appearance is really just a three minute cameo, so the highlight of the episode for me is now gone. And strangely, Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic details a possibility that this scene might be reshot. Now this is something that I've not really come across in the Twilight Zone before in looking into the kind of behind the scenes stuff So please excuse my language when I read this. But Martin Grams Jr. writes, A letter to Rod Serling from Ralph W. Nelson, dated November 29th, 1962, verified that there were intentions to reshoot the genie appearance and disappearance sequence in this episode. And then he quotes from the letter that the reason is because of the faggot-like performance of the actor who played the genie. So I thought about leaving that out, but it is what it is. Um, So I read it and I thought to myself, 
is this a misprint? Because Martin Grams Jr. doesn't really elaborate on the comment or add any further commentary on it. So there's nothing further than that line itself and that slur being used. Now I know that word has been used differently in England for many years. In England it was actually a food for many years and then obviously a slang word, part of a slang word for a cigarette. I have looked up the American use of the word to see whether there is some historical kind of evolution of it because sometimes over time words become used for different things than they were originally intended so I thought maybe that is the case but it seems to me that from what I can tell that word has generally in the last hundred years or so has always been used in the unfortunate way that it is now. So without any more information it seems that we have to take the comment at face value and it is disappointing that this show that we see as taking such great strides in other ways certainly wasn't immune to a certain amount of prejudice behind the scenes. I guess although I can't excuse it, I suppose everything is a journey, you know, everything is a step. You take one step forward but there's still many steps to go. So I guess we have to just file that under you for unfortunate and move on from it. But it seems that when the episode was viewed as a whole, there was very little point in spending the extra money to reshoot the scene, because this scene was the least of the episode's problems. So despite the episode trying to kind of put a different spin on the whole genie thing, what we actually get is probably quite typical of genie stories, but instead of George getting wishes, and regretting that he's done them, he imagines what he should wish for. And despite the genie warning him not to wish for love, the first thing he imagines is the object of his affection from work, Anne being a famous movie star, and him being her husband. Oh, dear. Make up, Georgie. You wouldn't want me to play my final scene with smeared lipstick, would you? No, I, I guess not. Final scene? Mm. It's been a long grind. They said you could have a couple of weeks off, but that was six months ago. Well, we could take our honeymoon now. If you want to, that is. Want to? Oh. Ooh, Georgie? Makeup all day, beauty creams all night. Well, they don't pay a movie star to look ugly, baby. Besides, don't you think I'm worth waiting for? Yeah, sure, but six months. So the gag here is that George and Anne are married now, but they haven't consummated their relationship. And obviously he is desperate to do it, but she keeps batting off his advances using her position as a movie star as her excuse. Makeup by day, skin cream by night. Now Anne is played by Patricia Barry and we have seen her before in the Twilight Zone in the episode The Chaser and it was a similar kind of wish fulfillment kind of situation. But in that episode, she'd been given a love potion that made her slavishly devoted to the man who had administered it to her. But in the beginning, before the potion was given, she was playing a very similar role to this, a woman who men were falling over themselves to be with, but she knew how to use that to her best advantage. Now Patricia was born Patricia White in Iowa in 1922, and it seems that her acting career came about by good old-fashioned hard work. She attended college, she got qualifications, and then a little bit of good fortune when she won a Rita Hayworth lookalike contest, which got her noticed and resulted in a movie contract with Warner Brothers. And in the late 40s, she met her husband, Philip Barry, who was a producer and director, and she started to use her married name. And the two of them worked on several projects together, and had a long and successful marriage, 
until he passed away in 1998. When we talk about hard-working actors of the day, Patricia Barry definitely earns that title, with 145 credits to her name, several of which incorporated multiple episodes of different shows, when she started working, she never stopped, and one of her notable appearances later on was in Twilight Zone the movie, where she played the mother role in the It's a Good Life remake. And her screen career literally spanned an incredible 68 years, ending in 2014, and she passed away at the age of 93 in 2016. So it's hard to really critique a performance like this when you're not particularly enamoured with the material, but I think she does a good job here with what she's been given, such as it is. And I think it's probably obvious by now that I'm not particularly fond of this episode, but what I do get a little bit of a kick out of is how George's fantasies are cast with the people he knows in his life in different roles, like his boss or his colleagues, and even the man who sold him the lamp in the shop makes some appearances. And even in his fantasy life, he struggles to do anything other than picture himself as someone who gets walked all over when he finds Anne smooching with one of her co-stars. George is so downtrodden that he can't even imagine himself having something good in life without losing it. So again, there are seeds of some interesting stuff here because I think a lot of us have that self-defeating aspect to our personalities to varying degrees. But it wouldn't be a story about old Hollywood without one scene at least that hasn't aged particularly well when George meets an aspiring actress at a Hollywood party. Who's that? Me, mister. <laughs> you hiding? I snapped something. Nobody done on this level yet. <laughs> you make your repairs? Always I have the accidents. It is because I am, how you say, too much prone. Would you like your drink now? No, no, that is just too hot. I am under the age. Under the age? To drink. <laughs> I have this terrible problem. You see, in the years I am a child. But I think I am mature. Don't you think I am mature? Yeah, I think you're mature. <laughs> so I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. But next up, George again goes against what the genie has warned him about. And I kind of like that aspect to it, that the genie was warning him against the things that other people generally do and fall foul of when they actually get their wishes. So this time, he imagines himself as a wealthy businessman. Nine, sir. I see you here every morning. Don't you miss school? Oh, no, sir. I wouldn't miss school. I get up at five from my papers. Then I go to the afternoon session at PS 31. Incredible. What do your parents say? My mom is dead. My old man had a store, but it went broke. Sorry, son. I'll have that paper. Yes, sir. Gosh! I can't change a hundred dollar bill! I didn't expect you to, son. So as George Hanley takes the elevator to his office, let's meet the man who played him. George Hanley is played by Howard Morris, and here is a case where I wish an actor really had a better Twilight Zone episode to play in, because he truly was one of our hard-working actors of the day, with 149 credits and multiple episodes of each show within them. And if you don't think you've seen him in anything, I guarantee you will probably have heard him. He was born in 1919 in New York, and his early training in classical theatre in the Shakespearean tradition was in contrast to where his career would actually end up going. 
In World War II, he entertained troops with the great Carl Reiner in plays directed by Maurice Evans. And there's our Planet of the Apes connection. And he began his television career with bit parts in television shows that maybe haven't stayed in the public consciousness as much as The Twilight Zone. But when we find him here in The Twilight Zone, he was just on the cusp of that decade of working in television really starting to pay off. With star-making turns in other people's films, like The Nutty Professor, also came regular comic work in the likes of The Andy Griffith Show. But what was also happening at the time was he was becoming more and more in demand for voice work in animation, often doing multiple different voices on the same show. Shows like Beetle Bailey, Mr. Magoo, and The Flintstones. And as the years went on, often the number of credits he got for voice work started to outnumber the credits for his live action work. And through his life you would catch him on things like Sesame Street, Garfield, Winnie the Pooh and many many other shows. But in addition to this, he also turned his hand to directing. And he directed the pilot episode of the comedy spy spoof Get Smart, as well as episodes of the Dick Van Dyke show, Hogan's Heroes and many more. So he too was a hard working actor and director of the day, but how is he in this? Well like I said earlier on, I wish this was a better episode for him, because I do think he's an enjoyable screen presence, and in a comedy episode that I don't find particularly funny, the one thing that is at least amusing is how he raises the material as best he can. The kind of imagined nobility that he puts on when he's playing these characters in his dream sequences, the guy who gives a hundred dollar bill to a paper boy or writes a million dollar check to help out his old school. But in his second fantasy, he seems to come to the realization that money doesn't buy happiness. Masters, I'm gonna quit buying things. That's subversive, sir. I beg your pardon. That's an American. Salesmanship is our way of life. Think of those men living on blue sky and a prayer, depending on you for their daily commission. They've got little ones, mouths to feed. And no, Mr. Hanley, you can't stop buying, ever. Buying is your destiny. Don't waver now. Do your duty, Mr. Hanley. Do your duty. Congratulate me, George. Hey, George, I said congratulate me. So in the first fantasy, he kind of sabotages his own love fantasy because he can't imagine himself as good enough for the woman of his dreams. And I think that's very fitting with the character who we meet earlier on. But in the second fantasy where he imagines himself as this rich man, the conclusion of it seems to be that money can't buy happiness. And then he gets a bit of a telling off for being too ostentatious when he tries to give a million dollar check to help out his old school. So I'm kind of struggling to see what the point is here. Because in a regular genie story, the person would live with the consequences of their wish after they had wished it. And then they will realise that it hasn't worked out as well for them as it should. And then they will move on from that, often having to use further wishes to undo what they've previously done. And hopefully they'll learn some lessons along the way. And you would also hope that there's some kind of connected tissue, which means that there is a point to each wish and how it turned out. But although George isn't making these wishes, he's just orchestrating his own fantasies, it's following a similar path, but that connective tissue doesn't seem to be there. I can kinda see the point of a man being so walked all over that he can't even come out on top in his own love fantasy. But I can't see the point of the second one. It's not really saying anything about George. It seems to be more plucked from a story of a person who wants wealth at all costs, but finds it pointless and empty when he gets it. But that was never George in the first place. So the episode is starting to lose its point. But let's see if fantasy number three makes any more sense. 
When George is stepped over for promotion at work, he decides that if he was a man with a position of power, he would be more fair with it. Easy now, easy. He's in the service, your boy? Yes, sir. The army, special duty at the missile base. I see. Falling asleep on duty is very serious. Oh, I know, sir. Only a presidential pardon can save him. Oh, please, sir. He's a good boy. Just a little tired. It could happen to anyone. Indeed it could, ma'am. Then you'll do it? You'll pardon him? If freedom is our battle cry, then justice and mercy are our glory. Ma'am, you tell your boy that when you see him tomorrow. But when George, as the president, is confronted with the decisions as to whether to shoot down an approaching alien ship or to let it land, he decides that the pressure of holding power is too much, and when he ponders the potential wishes he could have had, he decides that the best wish is to change himself. So he now becomes the genie of the lamp, but he's going to be a genie who grants three wishes. In the Twilight Zone Companion, the producer Herbert Hirschman says that it was a comedy that wasn't as funny as it might have been. The writer John Furia said, Herbert Hirschman, who was the producer of The Twilight Zone, asked me to contribute a script. We had worked together before, but I hesitated. I was not comfortable about approaching the idea in the science fiction format The Twilight Zone had established. I played with the idea of a man who imagines the possibilities and the consequences before choosing his one wish. Hirschman liked my proposal, so I wrote the teleplay. What pleased me most was not seeing how the film turned out when it was telecast, but that Sailing quoted the introduction I wrote, almost verbatim. So there was some apprehension there on the part of Furia, and Herbert Hirschman didn't seem to like the finished product, so is that why he was just a one-time Twilight Zone writer? You know, I feel that Rod Serling often gets a critical mauling for his comedy episodes, and I have to hold my hands up to that as well sometimes. And on this very show, we have had this discussion before. Is it that Serling couldn't do comedy, or is it just the Twilight Zone comedy episodes are from a different time, and what was funny then isn't funny now? And I think perhaps this might support the second hypothesis. Because this isn't a sailing penned episode, but to these eyes and ears, it just isn't funny. But there's more to it than that, because not only is it not funny, and the worst episode of season 4 so far, but that season 4 running time that we always talk about, really drags down something that didn't have far to be dragged down already. At least with Mr. Beavis or Cavender is Coming, they are mercifully short. And with time I've adjusted to the fact that even if I don't find them funny, I can endure 20 minutes of bad comedy and maybe just focus on what Sailing was trying to say in them. But enduring 40 minutes or more of bad comedy, I think I feel every extra minute and unfortunately it just becomes tedious. And like I said, I might not find Beavis or Cavender that funny, but I do appreciate the message, the love letter to life's oddballs, the assertion from Sailing that it's okay to be different, it's okay not to be like everybody else. But what is this one really saying? George describes himself as a jerk. Sailing in the closing narration even describes him as a jerk. But is he? Not really, he's just a bit of a doormat, the kind of guy who gets trodden on when other people go out and get what he wants. But the things he wants aren't unreasonable, he's not a greedy man, he wants love, he wants a promotion, the things a lot of us want. And his first wish for love at least seems to partly address this 
when it shows that George can't even make himself a winner in his own fantasies. But he doesn't seem to learn anything from that. He just kind of agrees with his fantasy that even if he got the woman of his dreams, he couldn't keep her. And then the next two fantasies that money can't buy happiness and that with power comes responsibility and pressure just seems to be disconnected from any journey that George is on. In the end though, almost by accident, he seems to learn the right lesson, that in order to be happy, he needs to change himself, rather than things outside of himself. So it kind of gets there in the end, but again, how connected is this ending to the man we encountered at the beginning? George wasn't lacking in kindness, he didn't need to learn to be altruistic, he just needed to have some self-worth and not let people walk all over him. So this is an episode for me where nothing really fits, which perhaps I could forgive if at least it was funny. But unfortunately, apart from walking away with some appreciation for Howard Morris making bad material just that little bit better, this is one genie that I won't be dreaming of again. Mr. George P. Hanley, former vocation, jerk. Present vocation, genie. George P. Hanley, a most ordinary man whom life treated without deference, honor, or success. But a man wise enough to decide on a most extraordinary wish that makes him the contented, permanent master of his own altruistic Twilight Zone. Well, Christmas and Thanksgiving might be over, but it looks like we still got ourselves a turkey. And I mean that in the nicest way. Uh, welcome back to the Twilight Zone podcast. It's It's been a little longer than I hoped, you know, but come December, life just kind of gets a little busy, doesn't it? And it's nice to have a break and come back to as well sometimes. But I just want to say thank you to a few people before we get over to some listener feedback and first and foremost I want to thank the other dimensional Zach Moore for interrupting the last Twilight Zone podcast with his other dimensional Twilight Zone podcast. I think you'll agree he put on a good show and uh, you know you've heard him on this show many times if you're over on the Patreon you'll probably heard him a bit more but he's a great podcaster with his shows Always Hold On To Smallville franchise fatigue and uh, he's always got something going on so thank you zach from the other dimension okay i also want to thank a few other people now i've neglected to thank the itunes reviews lately so i am gonna uh, i've probably mentioned some of these already but i'll just go back a couple of months just in case so thank you these people for your itunes reviews frank cap 99 thank you so much Alexander Gates, thank you for leaving such a nice review. And Lobsterman92, thanks for leaving a review on iTunes, I appreciate it, man. And M Warrior, uh, thank you for your iTunes review. And then EGM4 Pack, thank you so much. And also Up To Late 64, who says Tom's soothing style and delivery is so relaxing, I dare not listen while driving tired. I fully uh, endorse that please don't listen if you're too tired up to late 64 because i wouldn't want anything to happen to you but thank you for your review we also have some new members over at the after hours club uh, the patreon for the twilight zone podcast and over there you can get a ton of bonus stuff now there's quite a volume of things there's a whole slew of podcasts about the 80s show and that's going to move on to the 2000s show and there's also short story readings. There's also examinations of Rod Sailing's other work, things like The Loner and Carol for Another Christmas, we covered uh, just before Christmas as well. So there's a whole ton of stuff over there and a whole load of great people. So I want to thank these people for, for joining us over there. And again, I'll probably do a bit of overlap here um, because, you know, it's tough to keep up sometimes because. It's great having people jumping aboard, but I want to thank... So thank you to Erin Hickey. Thank you so much, Erin. Uh, Mark Pepper, who became a yearly member. And that's a new thing over there as well. You can get a, a discount for going yearly, and Mark jumped on board there. 
So thank you, Mark. And so did Sage Hoffman. Uh, Kieran West, thank you so much for joining the club. And Jeff Russell as well. Thank you, Jeff. And then uh, Mercus, thank you so much for joining. And also Harold Clark reporting in from Buda, Texas. Uh, he has joined as a yearly member as well. And then Ari Scott has also joined as well. So thank you, Ari. Uh, good friends of the show as well over there in New York. So thank you so much. So that is our new members of the After Hours Club. And if you want to jump on board, go to patreon.com slash Twilight Zone podcast. So let's go over to some friends of the show to hear what they've got to say about uh, the episodes in season four or anything Twilight Zone related now. The feedback has dropped off a little bit and I always notice that when my schedule becomes more choppy and less regular then the feedback drops off and I understand that and I kind of take responsibility for it but if you want to comment on any of the episodes we've had so far in season four or the episode that's coming up next then just send a clip of about five minutes or less to tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com or if you want to talk about something, you know, Twilight Zone related, but not necessarily about this, then by all means, drop me a line and uh, we'll put your words on the show. So I tend to go with audio only at the moment. Um, so if you get your clips over to Tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com, that'd be great. So let's go over to a friend of the show for a bit of feedback and I'll speak to you later. Hi Tom, Kieran here. Uh, as you know, I'm a new listener to the show. I only uh, started picking it up uh, about three months ago, but I have burned through the first nine years of your podcast, and I have to say I'm a huge, huge fan, and I really appreciate everything that you've done. Um, the Twilight Zone podcast has absolutely become a companion piece for me, um, and for that I thank you. Uh, I just had a couple of thoughts to share on some of the feedback that you had on your show regarding the 2019 episodes. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a huge, huge fan of this, the new episodes, um, but it seems to me that a lot of people have the wrong thing in mind when it comes to these episodes and what is wrong with them. You seem to be getting a lot of complaints about the fact that the messages were too on the nose and um, that Jordan Peele was not the proper guy and he had farmed out all these episodes. And I just wanted to address those things. First off, Jordan Peele did have other people writing and directing these episodes, but it's not as if he didn't have a hand in it. He absolutely did. I, I guarantee you that. Um, in terms of having him farm out episodes, well, like, yeah, he had a, I mean, he's a black man, but he had another black man write replay. That's important. Uh, he had a woman write Not All Men, and that's important. It's important, as you said on your show, to have that female perspective uh, on an issue that really affects women all across the world. Um, in terms of Jordan Peele not being the right person, I didn't ever hear any actual criticism of him other than just, eh, I'm not feeling it. Like, that just seems wrong to me. And, and I, I can't help but think that people are not satisfied with him simply because he is black and doesn't look like Rod Serling. And I think that's wrong. I think that Jordan Peele, as you've said, has the right tone to his voice and the right approach to this sort of narrator character. Um, in terms of the messages being too on the nose, I mean, if we think about Rod Serling and what he had intended for this show originally, if he was writing in today's world, those messages in those shows would have been more on the nose. He wanted to cast jo Joseph Shieldkraut uh, in the main role in The Obsolete Man, but wasn't allowed to uh, because it would be too on the nose. People criticized Rod Serling in his day for being too on the nose. So for people who claim to be fans of the Twilight Zone in this day and age to then turn around and criticize Jordan Peele for being too on the nose, I think they've lost sight of what the Twilight Zone really is. My last point is the fact that people have been complaining about 
how there's no morality plays, there's no commentaries on humanity and stuff like that. I would put to those people that if they looked at things from Jordan Peele's perspective, do you think that they would be writing about morality when he is a black man living in America who is affected probably personally by gun violence, by... Um, you know, male toxicity by police violence. I think it's totally unreasonable and really, really quite sad of people who claim to be fans of the Twilight Zone to criticize a black man for writing about these things or having, having his show be about these things when that was really what the Twilight Zone was intended to be in the first place. Um, I don't mean to attack anyone. I just, I just simply think that people who are fans of Rod Serling and of the Twilight Zone should really take a second to think about what they're saying in terms of their attacks on Jordan Peele or their criticisms of Jordan Peele because I don't feel like they are fully warranted. I think that Jordan Peele, there are issues with the episodes, they're too long, there's a lot of fluff in them and all that stuff. Um, But if we look at the positives of this this series versus the negatives, I think the positives greatly outweigh the the negatives. Uh, I'm currently training to be a teacher and I fully plan on showing replay to my class every single year because that is just a message that people need to see and it's a perspective that as white people, we don't get. We don't ever see it and that, that is a window into a world that we need to see because we need to wake up to the issues that affect people in the world around us issues that may not directly affect us but we have a hand in fighting and making the world better and all that sort of thing so I just wanted to offer that Um, thanks again for your podcast I really appreciate all the work that you put into it and um, yeah thanks very much (laughs) bye Kieran, thank you so much for your feedback. I um, I wanted to jump in a bit on this one, and it's something I don't do too much these days, but it's something that I would maybe like to revive a little bit. You know, if people have questions within their feedback that they would like to put to me, but generally if people are putting, you know, an opinion out about an episode, then I don't want to really jump in on that too much because I... I welcome those different opinions and I welcome those opposing opinions sometimes, you know, I'm quite happy to hear them. So I don't jump in too much on that kind of stuff. But if if people want to bring in kind of talking points and stuff like that, I might jump in occasionally. And I wanted to do that a little bit with this one because I think when you were talking about the reasons, sorry, the kind of feedback I got onto the show uh, and the reasons people... Uh, disliked the new iteration of it I think if I look at the kind of bigger picture the comments in the wider internet even in some very established Twilight Zone communities who I think should understand what Rod Serling was about and who should understand the need for civility even if you don't like something if something is well-intentioned, that need for civility is still there, then I think I absolutely agree with you that, you know, there are some really unwarranted uh, attacks on this new iteration out there uh, from people who seem to proclaim to love and get the Twilight Zone, but who don't really bring that to how they present themselves online. I think what I was gratified for with the listeners to this show and it's been a while since I've you know listened to those feedback shows I tend to keep moving forward but I think what I was happy about with my listeners I think we had a good I think we had a good cross-section of opinion from people who were quite open to this new show and accepting of this new show who sometimes had their reasons for not liking it and I think they explain themselves quite well and I do Uh, I don't necessarily agree with all of them, 
I'm quite, you know, open about the fact that I am a big fan of the new show. I love it. I really enjoy it. I've been watching season one again recently and really enjoyed doing it. But I think, you know, in terms of the wider internet community, sure, I, I would probably agree with you on that. I think in terms of the listeners of the show, uh, we did get a good cross-section of opinion. On any given episode, you would get that cross-section, but I think uh, the listeners of the show presented themselves in in a very good way and, and generally in a way, even if I didn't agree with them, that I think was was kind of fitting in in the good nature of discussion so i'm glad about that but i'm glad you're a friend of the show kieran and thank you for sending your feedback in and if anyone wants to send in discussion points then have at it let's do it let's do it if you want to get your thoughts onto the show about any of the episodes in season four or the next episode coming up then send your clip of about five minutes or less to tom at the twilight zone podcast.com <laughs>